Are you ready for the word today? Would you follow me to the book of Jonah this morning? I wrote a book. It's back there on the table called Greater Than Jonah. We put that out last year. Every now and then on our stops, I like to preach a message that that book deals with in great detail and a lot of messages, of course, in that book on the little book of Jonah. But I'm not I'm not really doing this as a way to pitch that. I just I love to take avenues to get me to Jesus. And what blows me away about the the little book of Jonah is it's such an amazing avenue to get you to Jesus. Um, We don't think of it that way a lot of times. I think it's unfortunate, actually, the little book of Jonah. And I'll give you time to look it up if you're using hard copy because it's in those what I call the crispy books. The crispy books are the ones where your pages are still stuck together because you hadn't read those minor minor prophets in so long. (laughs) So the crunchy pages. Uh, so you got time to find it, but everybody's using digital now. So your digital phone, your Bible can find it as fast as the non-crispy books. So um, I think it's a little bit of a shame that we take the book of Jonah and we relegate it to Sunday school for little kids. Almost the only time we ever talk about Jonah is with little kids that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. And what a kid's story, by the way. <laughs> Jonah was swallowed by a whale who vomited him up on a foreign shore so that he could go to a city that's notorious for killing inv- uh, strangers. Ever, all you kids come up here and get your cookies now. <laughs> See, I know what we've done with the, the little book of Jonah. But then when we spiritualize Jonah, we basically do one thing with it. And I think this might be just as sad. We take the book of Jonah and we say that if you run from God, God tells you what to do and you run from God, God might drown you in a storm. God might swallow you in a whale. And then we'll go, but, but, but good news, God's not done. Even though he swallowed you in the whale, he'll vomit you out somewhere else so that you can finally go do what it is you're supposed to do. And we sort of stop there, which really, by the way, is the first three chapters of the book of Jonah. I don't know if you're aware, Jonah has four chapters. And in that crucial fourth chapter, you actually learn what the entire book was about. Because the third chapter closes with Nineveh getting saved for all intents and purposes. I mean, they accept the message that they need to repent, and they do. And their great crime is violence. Their great crime is violence against the stranger and the poor. And so they repent of that in sackcloth and ashes. Even the animals, in an almost comedic turn, they put sackcloth and ashes on the animals, which must have been quite a sight all over Nineveh. They were serious about this repentance business. And they get to, you get to the end of the chapter, and it turns into chapter 4, and Jonah prays the saddest prayer in the Bible. He opens the fourth chapter with, I knew you were a good God. I knew you were full of mercy. I knew you were full of loving kindness. I knew you were going to do this. And this is why I didn't want to come here in the first place. And what you realize at the end of Jonah is that Jonah didn't run from Nineveh because he was scared of the Ninevites. And he had every reason to be scared because they would skin their enemies alive, cut their heads off, dry their skulls in the sun, and they built a statue of skulls outside the gates of Nineveh so you'd know what you were getting into. He had every reason to not want to go. They'd pull the skin off your body and stretch it over chairs so they could have leather furniture made of you. He had every reason to stay away. And there's no people of God there. They're all Gentiles. Jonah's a fascinating book because it's the first time in the entire Bible that God sent his message of goodness to a non-Jewish nation. 
It's a presage of the Jesus that is to come. That Jesus is going to cross all the boundaries, all the borders, and he's going to go into the places he's not supposed to go. That's why he goes to Sychar in Samaria uh, to meet the woman at the well. That's why he goes to Tyre and Sidon and heals the woman's daughter at home because Jesus is constantly expanding the borders of what we've placed upon the love of God. Isn't it amazing that Jesus in his ministry was just following what God had told Jonah to do to the Ninevites? He just did it better. Which shouldn't be a shocker because one time in his ministry, Jesus says, a greater than Jonah is here. Which amazed me. That's why I wrote the book. I was stunned by Jesus saying a greater than Jonah is here. Of course, a greater than Jonah is here. I mean, I'd like to think I'm greater than Jonah. I mean, I'd like to think I don't run when God says go. I go. I like to think I don't have to get swallowed by a whale and vomited up in Nineveh to go do. So why greater than Jonah? And so that was an exploration for me to watch how Jesus will do what has failed to be done properly because Jonah does not get swallowed by a whale because he runs from the call of God. Jonah gets swallowed by a whale because Jonah, like all of us, has to be confronted not with what he does with the gospel, but who he refuses to love with the gospel. You see, because you can do all kinds of things with the gospel, and they're not all good. I mean, we've beat people up with the Bible, and we've intimidated them, scared them, and run them off, made God look bad, make Jesus look unloving. We've put prerequisites on them and requirements for forgiveness. We've made them feel as if they've got to pay God off and honor God with their disciplines and their charity and their stuff before God will bless them. We do it innocently a lot of times. We do it to people in ministry because he paid that price. God anointed him because what we're really saying is is that he paid a greater price than other people. And if you'd pay the same price, God would anoint you too. And all that does is puff up the pride of men and puff up the disciplines of man in order to achieve from a God who's so loving and so gracious, he's ready to meet you at the end of the trail if you ever just come home. And when he gets to the end of the trail, you'll, you'll realize that he lived on that trail. He was always waiting for you to come home. He was always waiting with shoes and a robe and a fatted calf and a ring for your finger. And he doesn't want your prayer and he, you don't even have to say, I'm sorry. Because the prodigal son never says, Dad, I'm sorry. Because Dad's not waiting to do good to you when you do good to him. Now we've abused that. We've beat that up. We've misused it and we've dragged people through the mud and called it the gospel. But all of us are accountable. Not for our soul's salvation, not for our identity in Christ, not for our righteousness, but accountable with how we take the love of the Father that we know and that we all applaud, because we all applauded it a while ago. God's a good God and God loves me. Yay, amen. What we do with that knowledge becomes the life of following Jesus. It becomes the discipleship of those who know the Lamb. It is everything that we are. It is us taking this love, taking this goodness, taking this good news, and projecting it onto a world, not because they first loved us, not because they're our family, not because they're our church member, not because they asked us for it, because that's the easy love. Jesus once said to his disciples, if you love those who love you, he goes, even the heathen do that. In other words, even sinners know how to love people, love them back. That's you scratch my back, I scratch yours. That's reciprocal kindness. Right? You don't have to know Jesus to be reciprocally kind. You good to me, I'm good to you. I mean, you can be a snake, but if you're good to me for a minute, you can just go on being a snake to the next guy. Because if you're good to me, I'm good to you. And Jesus goes, that's not hard to do. But what becomes difficult is when you have to go to Nineveh. 
And what becomes difficult is when you have to go to the house of Cornelius. Or when you have to go to Tyre and Sidon. Or when you have to go to Sychar. So let's get on the boat, shall we, with Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, let me read a few verses to you. I really want to minister this morning on the tale of two sleepers. I want to present two little tales for you. And tale doesn't mean fake or phony. But just two short stories. Two boat riders. We're going to do a little compare and contrast this morning. This is the way I love to see how the Old Testament can come alive if you sprinkle a little Jesus into it. All right? If your Old Testament is dead, sprinkle Jesus into the story and watch it come alive. But here's a good little tip on a Saturday morning. If when you sprinkle Jesus into it, you still can't bring it to life, move on. Move on. Stop beating your head against the, the wall on that story trying to figure out what God's trying to say. Don't falsely accuse God of badness, murder, genocide, rape, adultery, abandonment. Leave that alone. Don't, don't put God into the man's categories of wicked. Because we do that a lot with those Old Testament stories. We just try to justify it. Well, it was the Old Covenant. Well, I think we, let, we just let God off the hook for all kinds of stuff. We go, it was the Old Covenant. He could just do whatever he wanted willy-nilly. If he wanted to just kill people, he'd kill them. And then here comes Jesus in that same Old Covenant world and goes, you got my dad wrong. Okay, so pay attention to Jesus. And he goes, you got my dad wrong. That's not what he looks like. I'm the express image of the Father. Watch me. This is what dad looks like. And then this is what dad loves like. Okay, so sprinkle a little Jesus into the story. If it comes alive, great, beautiful. We've just found Jesus. Let's go preach that. If you don't come alive, leave it dormant. Let it lay there. You go, well, should we believe it? We should believe Jesus. Let me say that again. We should believe Jesus. And you go, what do we do with that story? If you can't find Jesus, you leave it alone. Christ is the author and finisher of your faith. And don't worry about it if you can't find him there yet. You might find him in a year. You're going to grow more between now and then. Just leave it alone. Don't try to weasel through it and preach it into the grace and preach it into covenant. Just leave it alone. And when Jesus comes alive in it, we can preach it. And that's a good tip for all the Old Testament. It's a good tip for all your stories. Is where's Jesus fit into it? Because that's what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus. He shows unto them the Scriptures concerning Himself, right? Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone out to the lowest parts of the ship, had laid down and was fast asleep. Jonah's not much help, is he? Whose fault is this storm? Jonah's. Who's doing the least amount of good? In the, oh, there you go. You're going to find that that's a metaphor for life, by the way. Most of the time, most of us that are doing the least amount of good, or most of us that have caused the most amount of problems will do the least amount of good to fix it. That's almost a universal thing. You don't even have to be a... You don't, it had nothing to do with the Bible either, but the Bible knows it. So when, what, what chaos we cause, we almost always have absolutely no answer for. But we sure are glad to leave the world on fire behind us as we move on to the next place to burn that one down too. And here's Jonah, fast asleep at the bottom of a boat, and all the world's going to hell. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Great question, captain. This is what you ought to ask. What do you mean, sleeper? In other words... Why are you getting to sleep? Well, none of us are getting to sleep. 
We're out here trying to save this boat. Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Well, here's someone who's finally praying. And so then they cast lots so that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. And they cast the lots and the lot fell on Jonah. How many of you know that not all rest is equal rest? Um, Have you ever went on vacation, spent seven days vacationing, and got home exhausted? (laughs) Right? You realize the reason that happened is you didn't rest. You partied. (laughs) You pooled. (laughs) You snacked. You drank. You danced. You laid in bed, but you didn't rest. And that's... We accept that, right? I mean, we put that out on our employer the next week when we're unproductive the week back to work. I think employees hate, I think employers hate people going on vacation because the week they come back is worse than the week before they left. I'm not going to get much work out of this guy. Not all rest is equal rest. We're not real good at resting. And, and, and in our technological age with those little screens in front of us, we're even worse at it. We don't know how to just sit and take in the moment without being distracted. We can't even watch one show without perusing something else while we watch a show because they put a boring commercial on. I'm not going to set 30 seconds through that when I could go do 17 things on my smartphone while I watch them try to sell me a hamburger. (laughs) We just, it's constant, constant, constant running. So learning how to take a real rest. I like Eugene Peterson's usage in Matthew 11 when he goes, come, those of you who are tired, burned out on religion, come to me, I'll show you how to take a real rest. It's a great statement because we don't know how to take a real rest in our lives. But I want to show you today that there's a difference between rest that is from the place of apathy and rest that is from the place of identity. And I have had both happen in my life. I have rested because I know I'm a son and I know I'm righteous And I know I'm forgiven and I don't have to read 20 chapters a day for God to anoint me. And I don't have to pray an hour every morning of my life for God to forgive me of my sins. And I don't have to go to church 12 times a week for God to bless my finances or tithe on my gross instead of my net in order for God to give me his goodness. I don't have to do anything to achieve anything. I can rest from the Paul White has got to work his way to heaven mentality. And I've rested from it. Now, I still slip into it once in a while. I really do because my roots are work for everything. And I go back to those roots sometimes. I got to have him, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. I got to have him redrop the axe once in a while in my life and go, you can't earn this, son. You can't earn my favor. You can't earn my forgiveness. You can't earn my love. Stop trying. It's a gift of grace. It's not a gift of your works. You can't pay me enough for how good I am to you. And I think that's great news. And I've learned to rest in that for the most part. I'm just being honest. For the most part. Because I don't nail that. And I don't think you do either. I mean, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but... I've not met a believer yet that's found absolute rest from their works. I've met a lot of us that want absolute rest from our, and great, and we're continuously trying to figure out where we need to lay that baggage down. 
Maybe this weekend helps. Maybe it helps you to figure out one more thing you didn't know about. One more little grave clothes we can strip off of you. You're a resurrected person, but it's our job to take the grave clothes off. And maybe one more bandage this weekend comes off and you say, ah, can breathe a little easier than I could before that weekend started. Well, that's worth it all. But I've also been guilty of the rest that is really apathy. Stay out of it, out of a lack of concern. Not just stay out of it because it's none of my business, but stay out of it because I don't really care. Stay out of it because I don't really care what happens to them. I don't really care. I mean, I care as a Christian, but I don't care enough to really help. Not really. I mean, I'll contribute if it's cheap enough. Or if I can do it kind of anonymously, because anonymous isn't as noble as it sounds. Oftentimes it means my name wasn't attached to it in case it goes wrong. (laughs) Starts out noble, like, boy, I'm not going to let anybody know who I am. But before long, it turns into, I don't let anybody know who I am. You know, that sounds like the same thing, and it's not the same thing. I'm going to show you that sometimes things look like the same thing that are not the same thing. And so, rest in the realm of knowing who I am in Christ is different from rest from what I'm supposed to do because we got a sleeper on a boat who is completely at rest in the middle of a chaotic storm. But he's only at rest, not because he knows he's going in the right direction and he's obeyed God. He's only at rest because he doesn't love the audience he was sent to preach to. So it's much easier to let them all go to hell than to do anything about it. And so he faces a world that's on fire. And let me just get a little personal with all of us for a little bit. He faces a world that is on fire and says, well, you know, I know God loves them, but you kind of get what you deserve. I mean, I know Jesus will save them, but what did they expect? If you do this, this is going to happen to you. And it's easy to stay apart. And we live in a technological world where we get to know what everybody's doing on the other side of the globe the second they do it. Therefore, not only is that news, that allows us to make snap judgments on people we've never met. (laughs) On situations we know nothing about. In context and places that we've never been and don't want to go. God, I don't want to go over there. Of course you don't want to go over there. But we still love to talk about it and pray for them. While all the while going, you know what? Really the best thing that will happen is when Jesus splits those eastern skies and takes his church up out of here. And sometimes belying that behind the curtain on that statement of prophetic endurance is the need to get out of the hellhole. And just go, you know, we'd just rather be out of here than to have to stay and improve the place. To stay and help. To stay and preach. To stay in love. To stay and extend our hand. Just be easier if Jesus just took us out. And the storm that swirls around Jonah is not a storm that is the attack of the enemy. Uh, or, or it's not a storm that's there to stop Jonah's journey so much as it is a storm created by the consequence of what Jonah has decided to do. Now, 
Sometimes we'll read scriptures like verse 4, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and we'll just stop wrestling because what we've got is ourselves a narrative in which God stirred up a storm and chased Jonah. But how many of you remember that for two services now we've made this statement and said it again a moment ago that Jesus is exactly what God looks like. So here I want you to do a little experiment. Here's how you sprinkle Jesus into your stories. If Jesus and his disciples were doing something on the Sea of Galilee one day and Jesus told his disciple to do something and they didn't do it, do you think that Jesus would stir up a storm? He'd go over to the edge of the boat and conjure up some wind and bring in some lightning and a few waves and go, sick on God. Yeah. Show them. And if you think Jesus would do that, then it's okay to say God would do that. If you don't think Jesus would do that, then you need to reevaluate wherever you think God would do that. You go, Paul, are you saying the Lord didn't send the storm? Uh, okay, I'll just use comparative narrative. The book of Job opens by telling you that God calls all the angels of heaven in front of him, and here comes Satan. Job chapter 1, chapter 2 are fascinating because it's a behind-the-curtain moment. Job's one of the necessary books of the Old Testament to show you the character of God. Because here comes all of the angels of the earth and the demonic power. Here comes Satan. They stand before God. And Satan says, if you'll let me hit Job, he'll curse you to your face. And God goes, go do whatever you want to it. Listen, you go do whatever. It, here's, here's actually the text in the, in the Old Testament. You go do whatever is in your power to do. But don't touch him. And the Bible says that in the very next story, Job's family comes back to him. His, his servants, rather, come back to him and tell him everything bad that just happened. You go home and read this in Job 1. And when they get to Job, they go, God sent fire from heaven and killed us. Killed everybody. And you go, well, what, what's the big deal? Well, God didn't send anything from heaven. The first chapter just told you that God looks at Satan and goes, you go do whatever it is you can do, but don't touch Job. And when it happens, God gets the blame because that's how we treat these things. Bad things happen, God gets the blame because we've preached a sovereign God message. If it happens, God did it. If it happens, God will use it. If it happens, God's in charge of it. But the reality is that God's not out killing Job's family. And you can't read Job 1 and 2 and think God killed them. <laughs> That's the reason those two chapters are in there. So that the rest of the book, you'll know Job's friends are full of it. Right? You'll read it and go, these guys are wrong. God didn't do this to Job. God loves Job. God's protecting Job. God's got his hand on Job. God's not going to let Job die. And you want to scream it. Have you ever read the book of Job? You want to yell, shut up. This isn't what God looks like. And so, I think the same thing applies when you get to Jonah. What often gets attributed to God, God sends a storm to kill Jonah. No, God did send a whale to swallow a man who was dying in a storm to swallow Jonah. But the whale is salvation, not destruction. The storm is meant to drown Jonah. The whale is meant to save Jonah. If you need saved, here comes your whale. And so the storm that happens is Jonah's refusal to go do what Jonah's supposed to do. 
Because every time you refuse to do whatever it is you're destined to do, called to do, anointed to do, or blessed to do, you create a storm of chaos in your life that God did not send, but our actions do very much send. The wages of sin is death. You can't get around that. God sends whales into the middle of our wages. I've never said it that way. Didn't even say it that way in the book, so let me say it again. God sends whales in the middle of our wage. Your wage is death. God sends a whale to go, this ain't going to be the end. Now, when Jonah gets in the whale, by the way, Jonah believes he's dead. In fact, he prays that. He says, I'm dead. So I take his word for it. He died. Because the whale's supposed to be the path to resurrection. You see, the whale takes you where you're going to go, spews you out so that you'll do what you should have done in the first place. Resurrection is the recreation of man. So what happens is you go into death so that you can come out a new man. Why is Jesus greater than Jonah? Because when Jonah comes out of the whale, he goes to Nineveh to preach, but he still hates their guts. In other words, he does what he was supposed to do, but he hasn't had a heart change. And when Jesus tells the, the Pharisees, as Jonah went into the belly of whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man go into the heart of the earth. And I say unto you, a greater than Jonah is here, which was his way of saying, Jonah went in three days and three nights and came out and did what he was supposed to do, but still didn't love his audience. I'm going to go in three days and three nights, but when I come out, I am the love of my audience. Yes. I don't go after you because you come after me. I just go after you. I won't chase you because you've chased me. I'll just chase you. I don't wait on you to come to church to come and get you. I don't wait on you to buy a Bible to come and get you. I don't wait on you to sing to come and get you. I'll just come and get you. And I'll use every storm and earthquake and fire from hell that comes against you to bring whales into your life. I will outswim them all. Your destiny is to be hunted down by a loving God. And so when you run and you flee, He keeps chasing you. Now, Jonah's a tragic story. It really is because at the end, Jonah goes, I knew you'd forgive him because you're that kind of God. Greatest gospel message in the Old Testament is Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, where he goes, you are loving and gracious and full of mercy and faithful. You go, wow, he got it. And then you realize he goes, but then that's what I don't like about you. <laughs> Essentially. Now, I want you to be careful because this is an easy one right here to miss. It's fun to laugh at Jonah. And I do all the time. I laughed at Jonah for years as I was writing this book until Jonah started looking like me. And I went, oh, I don't know if I want to finish this book. <laughs> Because we can laugh at Jonah because Jonah had a vision of an image of God. He knew who God was. And he disapproved of that image because people should get what's coming to them. Be very careful that in the midst of your grace celebrations, you don't still harbor a closet in your heart that hopes deep down that people really do get what's coming to them. And I haven't met anyone yet who's got this one conquered. All right? I ain't met no man of God, woman of the faith, no lay person, no stranger that's got this one nailed. That there's not this someplace in their heart. And you go, no, not me. But if you can find the right face from your past. 
And there's a little closet in your soul that goes, boy, I still kind of hope there's a hell for people. And there's a little piece of you that goes, and don't tell me that hell might be redemptive. It better be punitive. You better stay there and burn. If there's a little space in there, then there's a little Jonah chapter four in there. And the lesson with Jonah doesn't end because Jonah hangs out close to Nineveh because he wants to see if they burn. And you know he's got his fingers crossed in Jonah 4. He does. But they repent. And I don't know that he's aware that they've repented. But after 40 days, which was the arbitrary number he placed on their judgment, God didn't tell him that. But he went in there and goes, you guys got 40 days. On day 41, when the fire doesn't fall, hmm. And so God, listen, he never stops chasing you. God makes a tree grow and give him shade in the middle of his anger. Because when you're in anger, you need some shade. And God gives him a tree in the middle of his anger. And the Bible says, and Jonah was content, satisfied to sit under his little tree. And then God sent a worm to eat the tree from the root up. And on the next morning, Jonah came out of his tent to sit under his little shade tree and it was dead. And he got so mad in Jonah 4 at God. He shook his fist at heaven. And now God steps in at the end of Jonah and goes, Jonah, you mad about your tree? <laughs> you mad about your little tree? I like to see that God's kind of got that sly look on his face too. Go, you mad about your little tree? And Jonah goes, yeah, I'm mad about my... Jonah's serious. Hey, man, I, I learned to love Jonah. He's one of the most honest characters in the Bible. I, I'm serious. He's one of the most honest people you'll ever read in the Bible. He tells God exactly what he's thinking all the time. Like, you're good, long-suffering, and merciful. I don't like it about you. Most of us don't have that kind of nerve when we pray. Just kill them all, God. That's how we want to pray. We don't pray because we're too holy. Jonah just prayed it. Just kill them all. So God goes, you, you mad about your tree? And Jonah goes, you bet I'm mad about my tree. And God says, now, how do you think I feel? He goes, you did nothing for that tree. I got 120,000 kids in there. Can't tell the difference between their right hand and their left in Nineveh. How do you think I feel about a people I have invested in and you're mad about a tree you didn't invest in? And the book ends right there with a question mark. God asking Jonah, how do you think I feel? And the book stops. The only book of the Bible that ends with a question mark because it's the book of the Bible you're supposed to keep asking yourself over and over again. How would I feel if it was my kid? How would I feel if it was my love? How would I feel if I put my heart into that? How would I feel if they were saying that about my family? They were saying that about my people. They were saying that about my spouse. They were saying that about my love. How would I feel? And you go, and, and when we ask that question, God goes, now you know how I feel. So Jonah is at rest in a world he'd rather see go to hell. Let me tell you about the other sleeper. Go to Mark chapter 4, if you would. I really didn't intend to do so much work on Jonah, but... I'm glad I did because it needs to be, 
I'm glad I did. There needs to be some work done on him that's better than he got swallowed by a fish. It's like, we, surely we can come up with a better excuse than that. And we get lost sometimes. Can I just throw this in? This is, a, this is meaty for a Saturday morning, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Um, don't get lost in whether the story is true or not. Okay? This has really hung us up in Christianity. As we read biblical stories, we've got to prove them. Like we're disciples of the Bible. The Bible didn't save you. And you are not a disciple of the Bible. Jesus saved you and you are a disciple of Jesus. Okay? So don't try to prove stories true. Let them be more real than true. They are real. What I mean by real? They really happen. People go through storms of their own devising and they apathetically sleep when they ought to be active. People get chased by the whale of God's grace and swallowed up. And then they get resurrected on another shore. And if they've allowed the death to do its work, they'll be a different person when they get vomited out. But if they don't allow the work to do its work, they'll just be covered in vomit and mad. That's a true story. You see what I mean? You don't need to prove whether it happened in 754 B.C. during the reign of the Assyrian Empire if whether or not a guy got swallowed by a big fish and vomited up and then the city repented. But what you do need to know is that God loves Ninevites so much He'd send one of His own and on their way there He'd confront His own about their lack of concern for the other so that you know it's a real deal with God to really love the other. And it ought to be taken serious. And that sometimes the storms in your life don't need rebuked. They need you to wake up and get busy. Because it's a storm you created by the decisions you made and the stuff you did. And you can go, I'm under grace, I don't need to hear this stuff. Yes, we do need to hear this stuff. We've sat under grace so long we won't listen to an ought to sermon anymore. And what I mean by that is we get into grace communities and then if anybody gets up and goes, you know what you ought to do? We go, I don't want to hear that, that's legalism. Ought to is legalism. I didn't say you ought to to be saved, ought to to be righteous, ought to to be one of the sons of God, or ought to to be forgiven. But I said you ought to because Jesus does. Well, that seems like an ought to ought to pay attention to. Right? Why should I love? Jesus loves. Why should I forgive? Jesus forgives. Do we need to be told to forgive? Sometimes we do. Why? Because we get our minds elsewhere and we need an ought to sermon. What we don't need are ought to sermons that are our performance to get saved, our performance to be righteous, our performance to be forgiven, our performance to be blessed. We don't need any of those ought to sermons. Those are, those are legalistic perform, performance standards and formulas in order to achieve something that God wants to give you for free. You don't need, you don't need an ought to in order to be righteous. Just read Jonah a few times and you're going to know you need an ought to. And then, when you're exhausted with Jonah, because he will wear you out. I know. He will wear you out, get on your nerves. When you get tired of him, go to Mark 4, 35. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, he is Jesus. Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. Here's our 
second sleeper. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? What a question, right? And he rose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. If you were 30,000 foot above these two encounters, you might be confused that they're both the same story. A man is in a boat he doesn't own, being sailed by people who are masters of the sea, through a storm that scares even the man holding the wheel. And in that boat is a sleeper on a pillow, completely oblivious to everything that's going on. And if you saw them from afar, you would think they're the same story, and thus you might confuse their rest as equal rest. But they are not. One is the rest of I'm not getting involved. One is the rest of I'm not apath- I'm, I don't care. One is the rest of the world can go to hell around me. The other is Jesus. Asleep in a boat because the story opens with, let's go to the other side. And I hope you realize that if you're hanging out with Jesus and he says, let's go to the other side, you're going to make it to the other side. We're good. Like we can go through hell on the way. Jesus could say to you, we're going to take a right turn up here and we're going to go through hell. And you could just grab his hand and go, you go, I go. Right? Why? Because it's Jesus and he said, let's go to the other side. And you know by reputation and by experience that Jesus doesn't say anything he hadn't heard his father say. So his father was standing on the other side of the shore going, hey, son, come over here. We got work to do. On the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they go into the land of the Gadarenes, a Gentile city that sacrificed pigs to a foreign god. And good Jewish boys stay as far away as possible. And Jesus goes, You see that little place over there with the pigs up on the mountain? Now, I was there this spring. I stood right there in that spot where Jesus points and goes, let's go to the other side. And it's not that far. You can see the cliff. And so when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, every one of them think, oh, no, that's the other. That's the ones we don't hang out with. For all intents and purposes, they say, that's Nineveh. I mean, I don't think they deserve you, Jesus. But they don't argue with Jesus. They just get in the boat. And Jesus is so relaxed that he grabs himself a pillow and takes a nap. And I've seen it. It's not even far enough to fall asleep. (laughs) It's not. You'd have to be dead on your feet to fall asleep on that trip. And Jesus gets in the boat. It's like he does it on purpose because he does it on purpose. Because he's replaying the Jonah story. And he gets in the boat and he finds himself a pillow and he lays down. And I think they're stunned. Like, man, this dude can sleep anywhere. I mean, we weren't even on the boat. This tripping going to take 20 minutes. He's out. And boom, here comes a storm. And the boat rocks and the wind rages. And on the side of the Sea of Galilee, there's there's a funnel of mountains that enter the Sea of Galilee. And the wind will come through that funnel and bottleneck when it hits the Sea of Galilee and then head to the surface and run straight across the Sea of Galilee in vicious fashion. And so there's a spot on the Sea of Galilee that when a storm hits, get out of it. Jesus has them go right through it. (laughs) 
And so here it comes, and there's Jesus asleep in the boat, and the Jonah story plays itself out almost word for word. When they go wake Jesus and go, what do you mean being asleep? In fact, they get so offended, they go, don't you care that we're perishing? Because you can find a place so at rest, people are going to wonder if you even care. But he is so at rest because he knows the father told him to go to the other side because there's a boy over there on the other side that's demon possessed that needs healed that's sitting on the beach cutting himself and living amongst the tombs. There's a whole generation of young men over there that nobody cares about and I got to go over there and care for them because the father doesn't lose anyone. The father will cross the sea to go find that kid and show him that he's loved and I cannot not go and so I have to go because he's the one for whom I came. And so Jesus gets in that boat and falls asleep and they wonder why is Jesus asleep? But Jesus Jesus can sleep because Jesus knows where he's going and is satisfied that the Father's going to take him there. So he doesn't have to panic and he doesn't have to freak out. He can just be at rest. And Jesus is the example of what it means to be at rest in your Father's voice. And to know, Dad said go, I'm going to go. Yea, though the winds and the sea hit. By the way, the storm that follows is not God because if it's God Jesus can't rebuke it so Jesus is aroused from sleep and they say to him don't you care that we perish your response right here shows how you feel about everybody in your boat but yourself okay your response right here shows how you feel about the gatherings. We just came through a global pandemic, all right? And whether we like it or not, we politicized it. Right? We just did. Like, like, I could give you my opinion, and half the room would go, <laughs> and half the room would go, he gets it. I know, because I'm going into churches, and that's how we are. We're like, we just, we're so split over pandemic, scandemic, plandemic, you know. What was this? I don't care about what it was. What I do care about is who we are on the other side of it. And I was really caring about who we were during it. Because during it, we were getting waked up by people that wondered why we were asleep. And our response a lot of times was, don't be a sheep. Don't be stupid. You ought to be asleep. Or don't be, I'm, I'm not paying attention to this. I'm going to go back to doing what it is that I do. You deal with this yourself. Because Jesus could have very well said, you got, got enough buckets? I mean, what's your problem? I'm asleep. I've already got it figured out. But he doesn't. When they wake him up, his concern is not surviving the storm. He knows he's going to make it through the storm, but they don't know they're going to make it. Can you, I'm slowing down here for a minute because this is so vital. That when they wake Jesus up, he could have said, what's that to me? I know how to sleep during storms. What's your problem? I'm at rest in my father's love. What's your problem? You freaked out? Well, maybe this will teach you a lesson. But he doesn't. In fact, in that moment, Jesus changes tact. See, I heard this message my entire life preached that Jesus is showing us how to rebuke storms. I disagree. 
Jesus is not showing you how to rebuke storms. Jesus is showing you how to sleep through them. But if sleep's impossible, the rebuke will work too. But don't skip sleep to get to rebuke. Don't skip rest to get to the rebuke. So Jesus doesn't rebuke the storm for his sake. He rebukes the storm for their sake. In other words, he rebukes it for our sake. He shall rebuke the devourer for our sake. Right? Not his sake. Why does he need to rebuke the devourer? He beat him at the cross. <laughs> he could just say to us, you don't need to rebuke him. I, I already beat him up. Just rest in it. And that'd be a good place to start. But if you can't rest in it, what are you going to do? And so my point in this is to say the people in your boat matter and the people on the other side of the shore matter. And just because you found some rest in the finished work and the grace of God doesn't mean that whenever you get aroused from where you are, you should theologize with them so that they'll get where you are. You maybe should just pick up a bucket and do what you don't think is the right answer to do. Or maybe you should rebuke the storm in their life in the name of Jesus. But whatever you choose to do, at that moment, they are important and they matter. And they always did. Tale of two sleepers. One guy is aroused. And whenever they say to him, who are you? He goes, I'm a Hebrew. He doesn't even answer, I'm Jonah. He plays the race card. Because that's what that meant in that day. Because I'm a Hebrew, so you do the math. I'm the one here that's got a covenant. You don't. So I'm going to make it. Which apparently was a terrible answer. <laughs> right? No, I'm, I'm serious. It, was, it sounds like a good... If I'd gotten up here and say, you know what you ought to do when you see people in the storm? Tell them you got a covenant. Tell them you got a covenant. And you're going to survive in Jesus' name because you got a covenant. And I kind of, you, know, you can get people shouting over that. But the reality is, is that he leads with the thing they don't have and that they can't have right there in that boat. But what they could have is you to take responsibility for this storm and get out. <laughs> it's your storm and it's killing me. You fix it. You take care of it. Listen, wherever the Holy Spirit puts you, be an agent of His love, not an agent of chaos. Be an agent of His love, not an agent of chaos. And when there is chaos, don't say it's not my fault. It's not my problem. Jesus gives you the example. The storm wasn't Jesus' problem. Jesus knows how to sleep through storms. Would Jesus have made it if they hadn't woke Him up? They would have all made it. They just didn't know that. There's people right now that don't know how good God is. They don't know the grace of God. They don't know the mercy of God. They don't need you to theologize them. They need you to love them. Stop loving them so they will change. Start loving them if they never do. Stop loving them because you see potential. We do that a lot. I love you because I see potential in you. Potential for what? Jesus didn't die on the cross for you because he saw potential in you. He died on the cross because he saw none. Okay? He didn't die to go, you know, man, if they just got a little religion, like the, the good kind, if they got this grace stuff, they'd do everything. No, he went, old Adam's got to die. So I'm going to go be old Adam. He goes, and I'm going to die in their place so that I can be new Adam. In their place. He's not asking you to be new Adam. He's new Adam. He's just asking you to join him. When you come in, 
check the old you at the door. But if some of the old you comes out in your habits and your actions, I still see new Adam. Why? Because Jesus is the man on the earth. And Christ doesn't live somewhere over in the glory land. He lives down in you and me. All right, so let's land this. It's been a long one, hasn't it? Saturday morning. You, got, you guys got, you got five minutes in you? And I'm going to tell you five and take eight. I'm going to tell you five, tell you I'm going to take eight, and then take 12. That's not true, I promise. No, I don't promise, but I'm trying to promise. I want you to go real quick to Hebrews chapter 4. I want to show you two verses that you all know, but I hope that you can see them through new eyes today. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. What does it mean to take a real rest? It doesn't just mean go to sleep. Sometimes it does. It doesn't mean sleep through storms. Sometimes it does, right? We just saw a, the second sleeper knew how to sleep through storms. First sleeper knew how to sleep through storms. That doesn't mean you're right. A real rest is not just the ability to sleep through storms because Jonah had that. That's apathy, maybe. A real rest is ceasing from your works as God ceased from His. Well, how was it that God ceased from His works? What works are we talking about? We're not talking about what we call the finished work of the cross, necessarily, because we're talking to a Hebrew audience about the Creator God. And God went to work creating the universe and everything in it and earth and everything on it, everything above it and everything underneath it, right? This is the Genesis story. And after the sixth day, God saw that it was very good. It was good, 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 very good. And God went, very good's good enough. I was shooting for very good. We hit very good. To get very good, I had to make someone just a little bit lower than myself. That's God. Had to, had to pull it out of dirt and breathe my own life into it. The only reason they're alive is because my spirit's in them. Look at them down there, those beautiful little creatures. And hey, God was smitten. Because that's what happens when you see your kid for the first time. And you go, oh, all the other babies are ugly. Look at this kid. Right? Look at this kid, man. Look at this kid. Look at those chubby cheeks. Look at those little feet. Wow. And I think that was God. He went, I was impressed with the lion and the wolf and the eagle and the whale. And then I saw Adam and Eve and went, man, that's it. Look at that. That looks like me. That's it. That's it. That's, it. that's the core of the gospel. And Jesus come to make that a reality for every person on the earth. Never forget that. Don't lead with, you're going to burn in hell. Lead with, you look like God, and Jesus wants you to know it. Jesus wants you, how? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the beauty of that man, Jesus. So what happens at the end of the very good day? God props his feet up and ceases from his works. Why? Because he hit very good. And once he hit very good, he's done with performance. If you're going to enter into a real rest, you're going to have to see yourself as very good in the eyes of the Father. 
Because if you don't, you will never enter into rest because you're going to keep working on being good. And we are so good at this in the church that we've built entire doctrines around teaching people how to be good, be better, and change through their activities and their performances. And until you see that you are, you are the new creation reality, you'll never see yourself as very good. You'll see yourself as the sum of your actions. Had a good four days, decent two, terrible one. Balances out in my favor a little bit. I'm going to go to church, get those other three days fixed. Now, we all laugh, but that's exactly how we've lived our lives. Had a bad morning. I'm going to fix this at lunch. I'm going to go do two good deeds. I'm going to pay it forward and buy two people's coffee, Tim Hortons. That's how we're going to solve this. I cut that guy off in traffic, and I flipped him off. I probably shouldn't have done that. Because although I've told myself I told him he was number one, I don't think that's the finger I used. So... Now listen, look at everybody in this room acting like you ain't ever done nothing like that. Bunch of liars. <laughs> I tried to use a real calm, decent one, because if we actually went into some of the stuff we pull, we wouldn't be laughing about it in public. That's what I found in a church. When you start letting people confess their stuff, it's always piddly stuff. You know, you know what I mean? Like you get up and have a prayer request. And people go, yeah, pray for me. I've been a little bit, uh, I've been a little bit lazy lately. Or pray for me. I just need to, I've been a little bit jealous. We don't ever have anybody go, you know, pray for me. I've been wanting to kill my next door neighbor. <laughs> no, and I'm serious. I mean, I'm in straight up going to kill him. I've like, I got a plan. <laughs> and if I didn't confess this to you, you would not catch me. <laughs> so I'm telling you guys so that there's a public record. Well, nobody does that. Because it shows you that even amongst believers, we gauge the severity of our sins. Because we can have all kinds of stuff going on in here. We ain't going to tell anybody because they're going to judge us. And we're going to look bad. And we're going to look less than we think we are in public. And so we keep that to ourselves. We'll let Jesus deal with that on his own. But we'll let them pray with us about our greed issue. Because, you know, money is not near as bad as sex. That, that's, that's, am I, am I, anybody with me? Yeah, I wouldn't amen too loud either because you don't know what's coming next. <laughs> well, I don't trust this guy. The next story is going to be rough. No, it's not. No, my focus is Jesus, not our mistakes, not our failures. You got all I do is that humorous part to let you know you got them. You might as well laugh about them too because Jesus has already paid them all. You need to know you got a God that's not a bookkeeper. You know you got a God that's not a bookkeeper, you can see yourself as very good. That's my final thought. If you know you got a God that's not a bookkeeper, you can see yourself as very good. If you think you have a God that's a bookkeeper, you'll never be able to see yourself as very good. And because you can't see yourself as very good, we've taught you to go work on being good, you'll never enter into rest. Never. And I'm encountering believers all over the world who've never had a day of rest in their new life in Christ. Not a single day. Or maybe they had 30 minutes right after they got up from the altar. No, and I'm being really serious. They had about 30 minutes. They had maybe, maybe an hour. They were in a Pentecostal church because they still had an hour invitation left. So I could say, no, I, I ran those invitations. I know. They're 90 minutes solid. Set your clock. That, that's when church starts, by the way, is whenever we hit the invitation. That's the real good stuff. But they get saved. They got maybe an hour of feeling good about it because they're going to get met at the door and give seven things to do this week. 
And they're not going to make it to the parking lot and they're going to start to feel it wane. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, the glory that is with the law fades. Why does it fade? Because the shine's off the penny the moment someone tells you what you got to do to maintain anointing. The moment they tell you what you do, you got to maintain balance and blessing and favor and goodness. And we even do it in grace. We start trying to plow away at every bad theological thought they've ever had before they even make it to the parking lot. Just let them be safe for 20 minutes. <laughs> and then the next time you see them, you don't have to quiz them on how they lived. Just love them. Just love them into life. And when they do reveal to you what's wrong with them, neither do I condemn you. There's no condemnation in Christ. Dad's not keeping score. God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. Not a bookkeeping God. You're very good in his eyes. I asked for eight and I took six. Let's talk to the Father, shall we? Would you bow your head just for a moment? I'm not going to tell you what to say. I'm not going to lead you in a prayer. But what I do want you to do is just dwell for a moment on the goodness of a God who will chase you down with a whale in the middle of your own chaos. If you get a few glimpses in your spirit of the chaos you've created, ask for his whale. I, I mean it. Right here where you are now, you go, God, I did this. I need, I need your mercy whale. I need you to come transform me. And the mercy whale's already swimming, man. The goat on Abraham's mountain is walking up the other side of the mountain when Abraham's walking up with his ram because God's always got a goat in the thicket. He's just waiting on you to look up. So you got a storm of your own devising? All hell's breaking loose? And you know it's because of what you've done, because of what you said, because of how you lived? No condemnation. Ask for the whale. Father, swallow up that part of me that doesn't look like you. Just swallow it up. Begin right now, Father, in Jesus' name. Just swallowing up that part of me that doesn't look like you and transform it into a newness of life. And when you spit me out into my new destiny, Father, make me the kind of man, the kind of woman that looks at those who I had trouble loving and find a way to love them through the merciful God who loves me so much. Father, may it transform me into the kind of person that goes to a Nineveh to say, God is good and he loves you in spite of yourself. And Father, give me the kind of love that loves them in spite of themselves so that I can like them in spite of themselves. So that, Father, I don't love them so that they'll change. I love them if they never change. Because you love them and that's good enough for me. And so, Father, make that my life now. Swallow me with that whale. And, Father, and this is our other prayer. And maybe this is the other half of the room. Maybe this is all of us. It's just the other half of our heart. The other chamber of our heart. Father, teach me how to hear your voice and rest in your goodness. And when I do that, I'll stop with my own works. And I can fall asleep in any storm that hell devises. Satan cannot stop me because I've already heard from my father. I'm asleep in the bottom of this boat. I'm at rest in how good my daddy is. I'm not trying to perform for heaven. Heaven has performed for me. And I will float across this sea to the land of Gadarenes because there might be a young man on the beach that needs what I carry. And Father, if I can make it through this storm by your grace, and I know that I will because you've told me where to go, then we can do some good in someone's life. And it might not even be someone I want to do good in their life, Father, but you want to do good in their life. And maybe one of those two prayers is you. Maybe both, both of those prayers are this guy. They're me. And wherever it is, land there in Jesus' name. Amen. What a good father we have.